millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, February 6th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, the Mississippi Senate advances legislation to allow more collaboration between community hospitals. Then the former state health officer breaks down some of the threats to public health in Mississippi. Plus, February is American Heart Health Month. We talk to a cardiologist about the signs of heart disease. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi Senate has advanced a bill that could help community hospitals across the state form partnerships. The bipartisan measure would change state antitrust statutes and allow for more cooperation between government-owned hospitals, regardless of where they're located in Mississippi. Republican Senator Joey Filangain of Sumrall tells MPB's Kobe Vance laws currently prohibit collaboration based on proximity to other hospitals. We have quite a number of our more rural community-based hospitals that are struggling mightily, financially speaking, and we were looking at the statutes that govern those hospitals and discovered it's been really about 30 years or so since we took a a deep dive look at the statutes that control those things. Um, And what we found were a lot of roadblocks for these hospitals that we have put in place in the law, such as being too close together, so you're subject to antitrust lawsuits if you try to collaborate or were to want to purchase one or the other uh, or sell to the other. Um, if you're too far apart and you're operating outside of what's called your service area or your footprint, then it's not allowed at all to collaborate or work together a contract or anything like that. There's some attorney general's opinions, unfortunately, that say that one board of trustees can't bind a succeeding board of trustees on any deal, which really shortens the window that you have to do deals. And most major financing deals don't occur in two or four years. They're more 10, 20, 30 years out. So it really um, put sort of the handcuffs on many of these locally owned community hospitals. At the same time, they're struggling financially, and we're complaining about how inefficient and burdensome they have been lumbering along when in reality a lot of that is the legislature's fault for not unshackling them to be able to collaborate to acquire or or sell um, amongst themselves um, as community government-owned hospitals. What do you think this could mean for those 
hospitals, now that they are granted more flexibility in how they operate amongst themselves, are potentially having mergers? Certainly, I think it provides a lot more options. Now, again, and I, this may or may not have come up in the argument, none of this is mandatory. If you've got two hospitals in the same area or even across the state, if they don't want to do deals with each other, there's nothing in this law that says they have to do anything. It just says um, if they would like to pursue that opportunity, if this bill were to become law, they would have those options that they could investigate and potentially pursue. It doesn't require them to do anything that they're not already doing. And many of the private hospitals can already come in and do these deals with like a Greenwood LaFleur hospital because they're not bound by some of these government restrictions. But if you're a government-owned hospital like a Forest General or Gulfport Memorial or, or um, UMMC, there are impediments to being able to collaborate, to contract with, to joint purchase, to have joint administrations, to save costs that could then be used to upgrade the facility or expand the services potentially, or even just to keep the doors open in some of these more rural areas of our state. How do you think this is going to be something that can have more of a short-term or long-term benefit for these rural hospitals? Both. I mean, uh, hopefully the goal is, is to keep them open short-term, but long-term to make them financially viable as entities that can continue serving those areas for many years to come. Anything else you'd like to share with Mississippians about how this could affect you know, their, their personal health care in their communities? Well, sure. I mean, we have discussed for a number of years uh, in many rural parts of the country, not just Mississippi, but certainly it applies to us, access to care has been a huge issue. And we know that healthcare is changing. There are lots of um, things where you used to have to actually go to the big brick hospital and stay for three or four or five nights that you now go to a, a smaller clinic and have an outpatient operation or surgery done and you're back home that evening, you know. So we understand that the healthcare landscape is changing and we have to be more nimble and adapt to that. Um, and I think this bill certainly is no panacea. Um, it's not gonna fix all the problems, but I think it'll take some first very important steps to allow many of these smaller community hospitals to be more nimble, more efficient, and to just have more options. I mean, we all want more options, right? Because if you've only got one suitor, you know, one out-of-state company, they can pretty much name the price or name the terms. If you can say, wait a minute, we've got two or three others who would also like to come to the table and start the negotiating, then you get a better deal. You get a better end product because you have someone to compete against. Democrat Senator David Jordan is from Greenwood, where the local hospital had to reduce services last year. He says the measure is a step in the right direction and asked to be a co-author on the bill. I was my start with the first step. I think this is a step in the right direction. Uh, I don't know whether it would completely solve our problem, but uh, i like to see a stepping in the right direction. So. What were some of the questions you had during the chamber today, that, and what were your reactions to the responses given by Senator uh, Fillingay? I th the response was satisfactory to me, since the hospital is co-owned by the county and the city, and uh, hopefully they, they point to committees. They alternate with the five members of the committee, and they alternate ever so often city point three and the county point two in that process. But the main thing that the county and the city owns it, and we need to keep it afloat so that it can take care of the citizens and our industry won't leave because of the lack of hospital service. How do you think collaboration between other hospitals and Greenwood LaFleur could help that particular health care system? Well, uh, that, that could work. Uh, 
Greenwood could do certain things. And uh, for an example, Grenada could take care of other things. But basic principles like delivering uh, babies and this type of thing and uh, basic services than we needed in Greenwood. But we are willing to make a sacrifice if we have to. But when you're used to having your own and doing it all, then it's kind of difficult to kind of share it. Especially, that's 28 miles uh, away. And somehow it appeared to me that babies be born 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning. I'm not that, I, I have great-grandchildren, not for us, but for my constituents. Anything else you'd like to tell Mississippians about how you think this could affect the future of rural well, health care? I'm disappointed about what could have resolved at all. I know uh, that we talked about back when the epidemic was spread in there, some people got as much as $200 a day. And uh, you run the clock on that. That's a lot of money. $200 an hour in some places. I don't know if that happened in Greenwood or not, but... That's a lot of money, and that's how we spent all our reserves trying to maintain services during that time. So we're on the ropes now trying to get money. But what saddens me so, we got 14, we lost, this state lost $14 billion of ex- Medicare expansion, which would help to build our reserve if we would accept it. But we turn it down. The poorest state in the nation turning our money uh, to serve its people, to me, is stumbling into the future backwards. I can't see that being productive. The bill now heads to the House of Representatives. Coming up, the former state health officer breaks down an increasing threat in prenatal care. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. Want to keep up with MPB? Go to mpbonline.org or you can find us on social media on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at mpbonline. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Following the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade last year, much of the focus on maternal and infant health has been after pregnancy. But in Mississippi, a threat to prenatal health has greatly increased over the last six years. According to former state health officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs, there has been more than a 1,000 percent increase in infants born with syphilis in Mississippi during that time. Dobbs, who is now the dean of the School of Population Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center, says this devastating condition also elevates the risk of miscarriage. In part one of our conversation with Dr. Dobbs, we break down how this has happened in Mississippi and what can be done to resolve it. Mississippi is seeing an alarming increase in the number of syphilis cases among newborns. This is where a mother has untreated syphilis and she passes it on to the baby. This is something that's extremely dangerous for the baby. 
It's something that causes miscarriage if infection happens early in pregnancy, about 40% of the time. And we've seen several babies die after being born with syphilis over the past few years, which is absolutely astounding and horrifying. What are the symptoms of infant syphilis? Well, you know, babies who are born with syphilis will see, they'll have, they can have neurologic problems, can have skin issues, bone issues, and they continue to get worse over time, especially if the baby's not treated. There's a whole sort of like history of the bad things that happen to babies with malformed dentition and, and, and bones and bad skin issues and also you know, neurologic damage. So it can, be, it can be pretty severe. We've seen in Mississippi over a 1,000% increase in babies born with syphilis in the past six years. What is syphilis? Would you describe it for us? Yes, yeah, syphilis is a it's, a, it's a strange sort of bacterium we call a spirochete, and it causes a chronic infection. Mostly it's spread through sexual contact, just, just like a lot of different things. But one of the things that's different about syphilis is when people get it, they will have an infection pretty much for the rest of their life until they are treated. So it usually starts with kind of like a, an ulcer on the private parts, but in for women it's hard because it's internal and it's painless. So you don't really notice it unless you can, you can see it. After that, it can cause a rash and then goes on to set up a chronic infection. Any one of those stages can be transmitted from the mom to the baby during pregnancy. Because that was my question. Do the mothers know that they have it, but you don't realize you have it? Absolutely. I mean, most of the women who have it just don't know they have it. It's very common for people to have it sort of in, in their system and not realize it. That's why it's so important for women to get early prenatal care and get tested for syphilis, because if we can find women early and if we can treat them with just a, you know, shots of penicillin, which is, which is you know, pretty simple, we can cure the mom and also prevent the baby from, from being born with syphilis. With an infant, what do you have, how do you treat them to save their lives? What do you do? Well, if a baby's born with syphilis, then you have to do a pretty extensive workup, including um, doing a spinal tap, you know, drawing fluid off their spinal cord, which is obviously very unpleasant for a baby. But then the baby has to stay in the hospital for like two more weeks than when they go home because you have to give the baby intravenous penicillin. So it's something that's considerably, um, you know, costly and takes a lot of time. It'd be so much better to help the babies be born healthy and prevent all the excess costs if we can just go ahead and diagnose syphilis early, get the moms in early prenatal care, which there's a lot of benefit for that besides syphilis, right, and get them treated, and then everybody will be well. So it sounds like the issue is not enough women are getting prenatal care. Yes, yes there's, a, there's a sequence of barriers that we're very familiar with, and CDC has studied this extensively. The first problem is getting women into prenatal care early and getting them tested. Um, in Mississippi, from conversations with OBs, the, the biggest problem we have is getting women into prenatal care early. It's real easy to, to, if you walk through it, for women to, especially if you're not insured, to find out you're pregnant, you know, maybe eight weeks. And then if you don't have insurance, then there's going to be a whole, whole another set of weeks that are going to follow that before women can get care financially covered. And then a lot of times you're, you're already in your third trimester before you even get your first, tri- your first prenatal visit, which is absolutely horrible. Docs have to be aware to test, and most do from my understanding, and then have to get referred to treatment, which can, which can be a little bit challenging because the penicillin, which is supposed to be generic penicillin, the price has been increased, you know, 
way high. It's now over over $500 a shot, I understand, and insurance won't pay what it costs for private clinics to hold that medicine. How do you deal with that then? I mean, how are they going to get treated? Yeah, that's the challenge. The health department is very happy to, to treat folks who have syphilis, but you can see the handoff can be kind of clumsy. If a woman's diagnosed with syphilis and and, and if the, the physician refers over to the health department, you know, there aren't people in the health department hardly anymore. Most most county health departments don't even have a person there, don't have a nurse there every day. So that's a challenge. And then for the women to get there, you know, every every one of these delays is putting the mom and the baby at risk and the chances of falling through the cracks increases with every step along the way. So the system we have is not designed to support women early in pregnancy. There is a bill in the legislature that would expand Medicaid for postpartum care from 12, well, from two months to 12 months. I would assume that you support that, but this is happening before. Before. So what's the answer? What what can be done at this point? You know, there's there's multiple things along the spectrum. Um, it's starting with the patients being aware of how important it is to get early prenatal care and being aware of syphilis. Certainly, if they want to come into the health department, folks want to come into the health department to get tested, we're extremely happy to do it. You know, I know they are. Uh, but then making sure doctors know how important it is to test early. Um, we, we certainly need insurances to work with us to make sure women get coverage quickly. And then sort of kind of covering those gaps between referral, making sure if a woman's diagnosed with syphilis, she gets treatment quickly. All those different sort of barriers need to be addressed aggressively because this is an entirely preventable issue. We can turn this around in a year or two if we're serious about it. It's going to save money. It's, it's a no-brainer. It creates healthy babies. It's an investment in our future. And, and this, this is a super, super easy opportunity for a win if we all work together and all focused on that goal. Dr. Thomas Dobbs is Dean of the School of Population Health at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and part two of our conversation. Uh, Public health messaging, uh, working with physicians, making sure our systems support women when they are pregnant. Those Those are measures that will go a long way at beating it back, but certainly, you know, people having health literacy around sexual health would be a phenomenal addition to what we need to do for folks in Mississippi. More on those solutions, that's tomorrow. Coming up, February is American Heart Health Month. We talk to a cardiologist about the signs of heart disease. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an associate professor of preventive medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. The month of February is recognized as American Heart Month to encourage people to focus on their heart health. Cardiovascular diseases are the leading cause of death globally, and Mississippi leads the nation in heart disease mortality. Dr. David Theodoro is the chief of cardiovascular surgery at St. Dominic's Hospital in Jackson. With cardiovascular disease being um, the number one 
cause of death in this country, and and that would be a that would be a characteristic of cardiovascular disease throughout my entire career, and and certainly way beyond that. Uh, it, it, it certainly deserves appropriate attention, and I believe that um, an entire month devoted to awareness of the magnitude and the breadth and scope of this disease process is is, is very appropriate uh, at a minimum a month. And cardiovascular issues cause a substantial amount of deaths every year in the United States, as you said. Uh, is there anything in American culture specifically that you feel contributes to this problem? You know, that's a really good question for which I believe that there are a number of contributing factors from an environmental standpoint. You know, certainly sedentary lifestyle, uh, the, the, the corollary to that is uh, you know, exercise or perhaps the lack thereof is, uh, is clearly a contributing factor. Obesity in this country is uh, on the rise and, and contributes in, in both direct and perhaps indirect ways. Obesity um, is oftentimes associated with other medical conditions such as diabetes and hypertension. Both of those associated medical conditions can certainly contribute in a negative fashion to the development of cardiovascular disease and other unhealthy lifestyle practices uh, similarly contri- contribute, such as uh, smoking and, and, and poor diet. And I think that if you were to amass that, that particular list alone and then apply those external factors to an underlying genetic predisposition that not an insignificant portion of our population um, have, you, you begin to understand from an objective way why in this country and other developed countries, um, cardiovascular disease is such a potent disease process and quite frankly, a potent killer. I also understand that heart health is especially an issue for adult women. Um, We've been hearing about events of Wear Red for women's health. We've been getting a lot of press releases about women's heart health this month. Tell me why heart disease impacts adult women so harshly. Yeah, that's just a that's a fascinating question that that has um, you know a, a couple of components uh, to 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 help understand the impact of cardiovascular disease in women. Let, let let me start with just a likely and unfortunate inherent bias that um, the level of awareness I think in many times even even a lack of awareness within the medical community, not all, but certainly some, and it's what what is talked about within the medical community relative to women and cardiovascular disease. It, 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 there just seems to be a, a differential between the, the index of suspicion and, again, awareness when it comes to women and cardiovascular disease. The you know, the breadth and scope and the whys and wherefores of, of that phenomenon are clearly beyond the scope of this discussion. But I believe that if we critically look at 
this particular dynamic, that's at least a component that must be recognized, discussed, and further vetted. Um, then, from a from a clinical standpoint, the presenting signs and symptoms of cardiovascular disease certainly can be, and many times are, different in women. The way that the female population presents with coronary artery blockage disease can easily mimic other issues that probably feed into this overall index of suspicion or lack thereof and awareness. So it's, it's a complex dynamic that you bring up, but one that is more true than not true. Dr. David Theodoro, MD with the St. Dominic Cardiovascular Surgery Associates, thank you so much for your time and for the information you've shared with us today. My pleasure. That was MPB's Lacey Alexander with Dr. David Theodoro. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.